It was supposed to be the perfect night. The kids were at the mother-in-law's. Wife had slid on some new lingerie and all devices were shut off as we enjoyed a night of rekindled love. But my dream night quickly became a nightmare. I don't know where it came from, but it's getting closer. I was curled up in bed when I was first alerted to this intrusion of my home. It possessed such a strong odor that it could not sneak up on its victim, even if it had a desire to do so. But that just makes it more frightening. I know it's coming, and I'm still powerless against it. My wife had gone downstairs to grab us some water just prior to its arrival. I was paralyzed with fear at the thought of her alone in its presence. But just then, I could hear her screams from downstairs. Baby, just stay put. It's in the hallway. I can make it outside. I can get help. Just don't move. My mind was scrambling and I began to sweat profusely as I gazed aimlessly beneath my bedroom door. As the seconds ticked by, it felt like an eternity. I began to see it reaching beneath the door crack, almost as if it was teasing me before the execution. As it slowly crept its way into my room, I began to fear my world grow smaller. I crawled further and further away from its advances until I pressed against the closet wall. I heard sirens and the unmistakable sounds of my wife shaking screams from the front lawn. I was beginning to lose consciousness from the smoke inhalation when I heard her speaking to someone. Ma'am, before I send my men in, is there anyone in the house? No, the kids were away, thank God. Just me at home tonight. My grandfather lived a quiet life after his wife passed away, choosing to spend his twilight years in solitude. He seemed to have no interest in being closer with his kids or even getting to know any of his grandchildren. He rarely attended any family gatherings. I only met him once during a wedding. Like me, he was quiet, a wallflower in an otherwise loud family. I wonder if that's why he sent me the letter. He wanted me to help get his affairs in order. As unexpected as the request was, I'll admit, I was curious. I took a few days off work and made the drive up to the lake house, a lonely place at the end of a long dirt road. The yard was an overgrown mess. The home, surely once beautiful sight, was left in disrepair. As I approached the front door, I saw two worrying details. First, a note had been hammered into the door. And second, the door was ajar. The note was in my grandfather's writing. Don't be alarmed by what you find inside. There are two messes for you to clean up. The first is here, the entryway. The second is in the basement. The basement needs to be completely cleared out. The contents destroyed and the room cleaned. When it's done, the house and everything inside will belong to you. Driven again by curiosity, I pushed the door open. The large entryway was dark, but I could see the swinging feature amongst the shadows. I couldn't will myself to look up, so instead, I looked forward. I didn't know what kind of game my grandfather had been playing, but I knew I wanted it to end soon. I found the door to the basement, also left open, at the far end of the room. I turned my phone light on and, more cautiously this time, walked down the stairs. The basement was small and notably well kept. On the wall to my right was a variety of tools hung from a wooden pegboard. To the left, power tools were neatly organized on a large table. On the far side of the room, hand and leg cuffs were chained to the wall. 
Above them, hanging from the ceiling, were hundreds of locks of human hair, loosely organized by color. Handfuls of it were stapled to the ceiling, and for the life of me, I couldn't tell how many people they came from. Disgusted, I made my way back up the stairs. I decided that I would call the police and show them what I found, and after that, I would want no part of my grandfather's game. Some other poor soul would have to clean up his mess. When I looked up at him on my way to the front door, I pointed my phone light up so I could get a closer look at the monster who brought me here. The man hanging from the ceiling wasn't my grandfather. The wildfires got really close that summer. The sky was a gray-orange mass of clouds, dusting everything beneath them with ash. We all stayed inside. It was too hard to breathe, too hard to see. The kids, of course, didn't let that stop them. My son, Roger, seemed more excited than ever to go out and explore. The wife didn't like it, so I told him to cover his mouth while outside and not to get lost in the mess. A mess, that's the way to describe it. Roger phrased it best when he got back one afternoon and said, Dad, it's like the end of the world out there. And for someone, it was. In that first week, a boy in town had gone missing, Alan Gibney. He was one of Sue Gibney's kids. A larger boy who made it a habit picking on girls at school. One of my daughters, Megan, was one of the girls he bullied. He liked to pull her hair. The boy's behavior aside, I felt bad for Sue. After that, my kids weren't allowed out. The fires got worse. Evacuation was less of a what if, more of a when. It never happened, of course, but it had us distracted. One afternoon, a few days before the sky began to clear up, Roger had a friend over. I usually let the boys keep to themselves, but I wanted to give them good news. The fire was dying down. Before I could push the door open, I heard something that stopped me in my tracks. It was the other boy, Max. He sounded upset. If your parents find out, we're dead. Worse than dead, Roger said. We get locked up, basically forever. I stopped breathing. My heart was pounding in my ears. I peeked through the slightly open door, not daring to make a sound. It looked like Max was crying. I know what you're going to say, Max said. I know what he did was wrong, but he got what he deserved, Roger interrupted. You know what he did. You saw the bruises he left on Meg. The idea that someone hurt my daughter made my blood boil, but something told me to keep listening. Dude, Roger said, he was bad, and we both know that he would have gotten worse. I thought you understood that. You even took pictures. I took them for her. I know, Max. I know. I couldn't bear to confront them. That would be admitting what I heard was real. While she indulged her sister's desire for a tea party, I went through Meg's room and found my old digital camera between her mattress and box spring. I scrolled through her photos and saw what they had done in reverse order. The first image was Alan's lifeless body. Roger and his friend were standing over him. The second, Alan standing alone, terrified, knowing what was about to happen. Sam was my boyfriend. I love Sam very much. There was a time when we were going to get married, but that seems like a different life now. Since I had last seen Sam, the flower has appeared next to my bed almost every night. It comforts me. 
The stem pushes out through the pile of the bedroom carpet. It grows thick and long. I watch as it rises up high and sways with a slow, dull vegetable weight. Then the receptacle bulges into prominence at the top of the stem, and an ovary of four petals extends out from the center and tickle the air. I laugh. I cover my mouth, and I laugh like a little girl. I'm 75. No one who ever sees me on the street. None of the other attendants in the apartment block. No one at all knows that I had a life once upon a time. That I had a boyfriend who I loved. Who loved me back. That we were going to get married one day. But the flower knows. The flower sways backwards and forwards. It reeks like death. But I enjoy the stink. I cover my mouth and I laugh. Some nights I twist the old back over the edge of the bed and I hang my head upside down until my white hair touches the floor. From this angle, the flower looks different. I laugh. I keep on laughing. I remember the last time I saw Sam. It comforts me. Upside down, the petals are arms and legs. The ovary is a torso, and the swollen receptacle is a head. Sam's white, swollen head. And the stem, swaying backwards and forwards, is the rope Sam tied around his neck in the July of 1965. The flower never rots. And because the flower never rots, Sam will never rot. He appears to me now exactly as I saw him that last time. My nails drawing blood as I tried with all of my strength to force my fingers between his ruptured skin and the unforgiving tightness of the noose. I close my eyes now and listen to the flower swaying and smell its fresh, dead smell wafting through the air. I laugh. I put my fingers inside of my mouth, and I laugh. Is this your card? The magician said, holding the volunteer's signed Ace of Hearts. Yes, the man yelled in surprise. Of course it is. The magician joked, and in your shock, you might be wondering how the card was removed from your shirt pocket. Would you do me a favor and see what has taken its place? Sure. The man unbuttoned his pocket and pulled out cash. It's a hundred dollar bill. Yes, sir. And now it's yours. Thanks for being such a fantastic assistant. With that, the magician gestured back to the man's seat. The crowd clapped, the man gleefully holding his reward in the air for his friends to see. The magician allowed the applause to die out before continuing. He smiled mischievously. With that being said, I asked for one more volunteer. Hands shot up in the air immediately, including mine. Don't expect to get picked, Byron grumbled. The other guy's probably just a plant. I glared at him briefly, annoyed, before looking back. The magician was no longer smiling, instead staring daggers at my friend. Somehow, from the front of the room, he seemed to have heard what Byron said. Sir, 
He called out to Byron. I believe you would be a perfect assistant. Please come to the stage. The audience began to clap, and after rolling his eyes at me, Byron relented. As my friend reached the stage, the smile slowly returned to the magician's face. Well then, let us speak about your skepticism. This man, as you may have overheard, does not believe in magic. The magician placed his hand on Byron's shoulder, and the crowd began to boo. I joined in. Now, now, it's perfectly reasonable to have doubts about my abilities. Most magicians are simply flamboyant con men using sleight of hand and rigged variables to present something that mystifies believers and challenges non-believers' abilities to see past the ruse. I, however, am no con man. The magician took his large hat and held it towards the audience, spinning it around. As you can see, this is a normal hat. No rigged variables, of course, and certainly no rabbit. Sir, what is your name? Byron. Take this hat from me, Byron. Look at it closely and make sure it's completely normal. No gears, no wires, nothing out of the ordinary. Byron looked over the hat, turning it in his hands. Seems normal to me. Hold out the hat, sir, with the opening pointed towards me. Byron did as instructed. My previous trick was switching the card with a hundred dollar bill from across the stage. The magician said, holding up the signed playing card. And for my next trick, I will exchange this card for something almost as valuable as money. The magician reached into his hat with the other hand holding the card. As he pulled his hand out, Byron collapsed. The magician held up his hand. The card had been replaced by Byron's still beating heart. I saw them last night. I'm the main keeper and partial owner of a small cemetery on the east coast. My job is to make sure things go smoothly. I'm in charge of everything from burials and arrangements to maintaining the ground and sometimes even sales, caskets and such. Although I'm encouraged to upsell as much as possible, I never do. It doesn't seem right to try to get every last penny out of someone who just lost a loved one. And after all, it's just a box. It being prettier than the others isn't really of the utmost importance. Last time I checked, the dead don't care about fashion. I just hope they're staying dead. This week, I drew the short straw and I had to work the 9pm to 6am shift. We usually have a security guard, but he called in due to a family emergency. There had been some strange happenings occurring on site recently and we thought that there was a group of local kids that might be vandalizing the property at night. I set up in our main office which was located in the dead center of our 40.6 acres of property. There was an old VCR in the lounge that had been there for years and when you press play I was surprised to see Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in old-fashioned lettering. Frankenstein was just about to grab the main character when I heard what sounded like a small explosion outside. And then another. And another. I grabbed my flashlight. I was wondering if the local kids broke in and set off some unused fireworks from the 4th of July. The idea of calling the cops immediately passed through my mind, but I thought better of it. It was probably just some kids after all. If they didn't know anyone was there besides them, perhaps I could just give them a scare. Liking that idea, I shut the flashlight off and crept out the back entrance. 
quickly running across the edge of the cemetery. My body was now concealed in thick shadows as I made my way closer to the explosions. There was a fourth, then a fifth boom, and then silence. Suddenly, I saw the outline of five figures standing together around the water of a large pond we maintained. Gotcha, I thought, a wide smile spreading across my face. Thinking over the best way to scare them off, I decided on the old police routine. Running over behind the largest gravestone in sight, I slid down and realized I was only 20 or so feet away. I was filled with a mixture of excitement and nervousness, and for a moment, I thought better of the whole plan, but excitement won out. Freeze you sons of bitches, it's the police, I yelled, running towards them and making as much noise as possible. Now, the thought never occurred to me that they might actually freeze, and as I made my way closer, fear took over. The five figures hadn't even flinched at my screaming, in fact, they weren't moving at all. My running slowed to a crawl as I now stood about six or seven feet away. A few moments of silence passed by and still the figures didn't move. I took one step closer and turned on my flashlight. It flickered for a moment and then held heavy on the backs of the five individuals. And then it hit me. They weren't kids. They were adults and they were all dressed as if they had been buried. I even recognized some of them. There was a tall man of 50 that had suffered a heart attack just days ago. And there was a woman standing at the edge that had been 93 years old. I remember because the obituary had said she had died the very day of her birthday. Fear was indeed taken over now and I forced myself to say the only thing that would pop out of my head. Hello? They showed no signs of having noticed me and only stood together staring into the dark water of the pond. I ran back into the office and called 911. Even in my shocked state, I was aware enough to realize that explaining dead people had risen from their graves probably wouldn't be the best idea. So I told the operator that a few adults had broken into the cemetery. Within 15 minutes, a single cop car arrived and two young men stepped out of the vehicle. They drove around for a short while and then walked the rest of the hill on foot, finding nothing of course. When they got back to the main office, they explained to me that there was no trace of anyone. They did however admit to seeing more than one trail of dirt leading down to the pond. The next morning I started to tell the other workers about what I had seen and then thought better of it. Seeing five recently dead figures staring at their reflections in the middle of the night. I'll keep that to myself. Thought of something better. I work the night shift again tonight. I'm going to grab a shovel and see for myself if those five are still where they should be. It has all started over again and I'm scared out of my mind. I can't run away from it anymore. I have to face it sometime soon so that's why I'm writing this down right now and hope that maybe somebody will find it but let me start from the beginning it started when i was around 11 years old i can remember it so clear me and my best friend will call her emma for her own privacy emma invited me to watch a horror movie at her house since her parents were out of town for the weekend it was so exciting since my mom would never let me watch horror movies at home it was a friday night when i came over 
Denise. She gave me a big hug after opening the door. I'm so glad you were able to come over today. I got a big surprise. She said smiling widely while handing me a glass of iced tea. No problem, I said smiling back at her and taking a sip of my iced tea. Okay, so I found this down in the basement. She said showing me a sort of board game. What is that? I asked while frowning. It's a Ouija board. It's supposed to call out evil spirits. She said with a creepy tone in her voice. We can't do that. What if my mom finds out? You know how much she grounds me for no reason at all? I said a little bit mad. I wanted to leave right there and then. God, I wish I did. If I did, none of this would have happened. I'll fast forward now or otherwise this would be the longest story of all time. We used the Ouija board. Nothing happened at that moment, or maybe it did. When I got home, my mom was already asleep. I went straight to bed, but I got woken up a few hours later. Looked at my clock. It said 3 a.m. Great, I thought to myself. I couldn't fall asleep right away. That's when I heard it. Kids' laughter. Combined with kids' footsteps up in the attic. That's weird. I just have a three-year-old brother and he's at a friend's house. I sat up straight in my bed and heard more laughter and toys being thrown around. I couldn't understand this. Was this because of the Ouija board? Or was Emma playing a prank on me since she liked to do that? I heard more footsteps and got really scared. I hid myself under the sheets and tried to go back to sleep. Come play with us. I ran out of bed to my mom's room and woke her up crying. She didn't believe me at first, but let me sleep in her bed for the night. After that, strange things happened, but slowly this thing formed into a person. I always heard footsteps in the hallway. That wasn't my mom or my brother. My dad had died when I was two, so that wasn't the answer. I hear my name so many times, knocking on my door, even my window, and from the attic, on the walls, everywhere. When I was 16, my sleep paralysis began. It was always the same, with a man hanging over me trying to choke me to death. I couldn't breathe, literally. It felt like I was dying. I couldn't scream or move. I couldn't do anything. My eyes kept closing and opening, and I couldn't fight it. It felt like hours and hours. I tried to take my own life so that I wouldn't be stuck with this thing anymore. After my attempt, I went to see a doctor and I got medication so that I could fall asleep. After that, it stopped. It was great to finally breathe and sleep again like someone normal, but I don't use this medication anymore. I live alone now. I keep hearing footsteps again. I can hear it calling my name. It's pulling me into its darkness. I can see it everywhere in the corner of my eyes. It's everywhere. I can't sleep anymore. It's so close. I can feel its breath on my neck when I write this. I can hear it whispering my name. There's a hand on my shoulder. Please, help me. This happened a couple of years back in some tech company I started working for. At first, I thought I was imagining things, but later the truth revealed a troubling event. It's still etched in my mind. It won't leave me. So a few months after I began my employment period, I noticed a strange pattern repeating itself over and over, and it wasn't anything to do with other people in the building. It caught me when I was alone, in the restroom, after lunch, or before I went home. Timing was not the point. I was in the toilet when I started hearing the weeping, a very troubling, deep, sad weeping of a lady. She sounded like a young woman, about 40 years of age, 
Now at first I ignored it, thinking it might have been some unsatisfied employee crying miserably for her idiot boss, or something, and hoped it would go away. But as time moved on, after a few months, it started building up in me. The thoughts, what the hell is she crying so deeply about? And believe me, the crying was real, like a mother had lost her child or something. It was very faded, like it came from a few stories above, and considering I'm on the 39th floor, I said to myself, she can't be that far, just a few floors to the roof. Maybe I'll go talk to her. Another thing was her voice. It sounded pretty much like a pattern. I couldn't tell if it was someone playing the same recording over and over again, or if it was real. I had doubts. I didn't want to believe a person gets so sad just because they hate their job. Maybe she had an affair, and her partner left her. Maybe it was the other way around. My thoughts were racing. A few weeks went by with this strange phenomena stuck in my head, until I decided to talk it out to a friend I was very close to. Hey Dana, can I tell you something? I'm not sure how to describe it. It's very troubling, and I feel I gotta share it with someone. Sure, what is it? She replied. I began describing the case when she immediately stopped me. Opening her eyes, she turned white just from the thought. Then she started telling me the most terrifying story I've ever heard. So a few years ago, she said, I also heard her weeping. It occurred every day. It was very, very troubling, and I couldn't set my mind out of it. At some point, I couldn't even work normally. I remember one time I heard it so close, like from the next toilet booth. I went out and called her. I said, hello, why are you crying? But she never answered. I turned to other people on the floor describing it. Some were nodding their heads speechlessly. Some were not exposed to it. But I found one friend that did confess. She had heard it as well. We turned to the supervisor of the building, a very strict person, quite old. He was there from the time they started occupying the skyscraper. He started revealing the whole story. We couldn't believe what we were hearing. He said, When they were building this structure, a very horrifying tragedy occurred. To my knowledge, and this is a true story, two construction supervisors, a man and a woman, fell down the elevator shaft from one of the top floors. They crashed and were killed instantly, suffering with broken organs and torn flesh from the concrete walls and steel spikes poking from the walls towards the inside of the pit. And then Dana followed it up with, I began tearing. The horror. I couldn't believe it. So my friend from work continued and told me after he explained the case to them, they invited a rabbi to check and maybe help them sort this terrible eerie incident. She told me the rabbi came, conducted a prayer, a prayer that had something to do with a locked spirit or souls. I don't recall the exact phrase, but after that she said, the crying stopped. The lady's soul was trapped inside the elevator shaft. Her weeping was her deep sorrow and grief for herself about to leave this world and her family behind. Only it was so sad that the soul couldn't bear leaving our physical dimension. My analysis. I can't imagine the horrific pain and feeling you are diving 40 plus floors to the end of your life. I was tearing just from the pictures running in my head of them falling, shouting to God, begging for their lives. The most terrifying of all is the moment when you know you are going to die. I get that. And so I freed the voice from that moment on, knowing the true faith of that woman. I don't work there today, but I don't think I heard the weeping after that, I'm happy to say. I'm scared, for both my life and my son's. My husband had been acting strangely since we moved into the apartment. 
He claimed to hear strange noises in the apartment since the beginning, then started to see things I never did. Two nights ago, I woke to his voice on the baby monitor amongst the baby's piercing cries. Where are you? Who the bloody hell are you? Show yourself. I ran to the baby's room to find him waving a knife, circling around, frantic. He came at me first, narrowly missing me with a weapon. He was losing it. I got him to eventually realize it was me and calm down, then immediately grabbed the baby and called the police. As I said, I was scared to have him around us. I hated doing that to him, but I immediately felt safer. Since I'm alone, I installed a nanny cam in the nursery the morning after he was taken in with a screen on my nightstand to keep a close eye on the baby. Last night, I turned over in bed, and in my half-asleep state, glanced at the monitor. What I saw snapped me completely awake. There was a dark figure, a woman, standing next to the crib, her eyes glaring white against the darkness of the room. I went into protective mode and grabbed the bat from under my bed and ran to his room. No one was there. It was impossible for her to have passed me in that time. I'm scared, for both my life and my son's. Because my husband wasn't crazy, he was right. My twin sister Janessa was murdered at the age of 16. I witnessed it like a coward from atop a tree in the forest where it happened. I actually blacked out the memory for a while. I knew she was dead, but I couldn't remember how it happened. It wasn't until I tried therapy that it slowly came back to me. I was also reminded how much my parents used to fight. Our family was planning a camping trip the day before my sister's death. Before leaving, my parents erupted into a massive fight. Janessa and I were looking forward to the trip, and once again our parents' awful communication skills ruined everything before it even happened. We snuck out the house and took a lift to the forest. We left our phones at home, not caring whether our parents would be worried sick. We enjoyed ourselves the first day. I set up our tent, made a fire, had s'mores, and did all the stuff typically associated with camping. The next morning everything changed. I woke up alone in our tent. Outside of here my sister talking to someone. Inquisitive, I opened the tent and saw someone sitting at our now out campfire who looked just like me. The figure transformed as soon as Janessa realized it wasn't me. Together we ran off. The thing was rushing after us with heavy footsteps. I was faster than my sister and a bit more athletic. I grabbed onto a tree branch and climbed up the tree. Janessa was not so lucky. I watched it happen. I watched that thing tear my sister to pieces. I'm still haunted by her screams. I also understand now why she always appears badly mutilated in my nightmares. I stayed up in that tree overnight, my sister's corpse laying in the leaves. Her remaining eye was staring up at me. While in therapy, there was a moment when I suddenly recalled the hallucination I had the morning of my sister's death. I thought I saw her corpse clawing at the tree where I hid. She wanted me to come down and join her. It caused me to panic and cry out. A couple of men who had been camping in my area heard my screams and at last I was rescued. My parents don't argue anymore. I hardly see them at all anymore since my sister's death. Over the last couple years, my parents have frequently gone on vacations. They don't tell me where, and I never ask. I usually wake up and find out that they left yet again. I'm out of high school now, and have no career path. 
I've only really had one thing on my mind since I remembered what killed Janessa. Now I'm returning to that forest where she died, and I'm going after that thing that killed her. I've been preparing for this, and if it's a Wendigo, like I've suspected, then I'm more than ready to take my revenge. This is how I'm doing it. I took a lift again. Had the driver known what I was carrying in my bags, I doubt he would have let me in. As I sat there, the realization of what I was doing grew heavy on me. What the hell am I doing? I've been talking myself up to do this for the last couple years. As much as I wanted a glorious victory, the closer I've come to this day, the more I've started to daydream about dying the same way that Janessa did. As angry as I am with my parents, I don't think they deserve to lose their only remaining child. But I just can't move on knowing that the thing's still out there. My legs were as dense as gold once I tried to exit the cab. The driver watched me awkwardly as I struggled to pull myself out while putting my backpack on and working to carry the other supplies. Why was I doing this alone? I guess I didn't want anyone else to get hurt in this, but God, I wish I wasn't out here doing this alone. With each step I took into the forest, the more the terror numbed. I was in the domain of the Wendigo now. I wasn't entirely sure how much of the information about them was real. I knew that they could change their appearance. I know that their true form is just like the drawings people have made. There's no way to be an expert on these things unless you actually dealt with one. I'm still not sure why it decided not to come after me. Based on its size, I doubt it would have had any difficulty. Instead, I'm still alive and crazy enough to come back to pick a fight. As I set up camp, I found myself jumping at the sound of any bird call or movement by any nearby animal. The way I hammered in my tent, I knew I was calling attention to myself. In my left pocket was a gun. Like werewolves, I heard that silver bullets were necessary to kill Wendigos, but what if I was wrong? The thought had been with me ever since I stepped foot back into these woods. I stopped frequently while setting up. Behind a nearby tree, I was almost certain I could see someone watching me, then hiding behind it. I didn't bother to walk over or check it out. I finished up the tent and made up my sleeping bag inside. As I did this, I heard calls that sounded almost human off in the distance. It probably knew I was here. The minutes went by slowly, but soon dusk set upon the forest. I built a fire like the one Janessa and I had made. I roasted two marshmallows. Despite her absence, I made a s'more for her as well, resting it on the sizable rock near the fire. As I ate it, I thought about our last night together. All things considered, it was pleasant. Being twins, we had our moments where we had gotten into arguments like our parents. We'd fought one another. We had our problems. But that night had been pleasant. I'd actually been glad that we decided to camp without our parents. As frightened as I still was, I felt the warmth, not from the fire. A sense of calm came over me as my memories were suddenly flooded with the good times Janessa and I had. The good times were not for long. I could hear footsteps not far behind me. Jeremy. I could never forget that voice. It sounded like Janessa, but I knew it wasn't her. For some reason, I felt compelled to sit there calmly. As it approached, I could tell it was going to take a seat at the rock where I left the s'more. I glanced delicately to my right. I watched as a figure that looked almost identical to the Janessa I remember pick up the s'more and take a bite. That's not yours. I surprised myself by blurting out. The fake Janessa ignored me, continuing to scarf it down. My terror turned to anger. The thing responsible for my sister's death is sitting right next to me, mocking my grief. 
I didn't wait for it to finish. I pulled up my gun and pointed it directly at the figure. Before I could fire, the creature jumped to the left and turned around. I was stuck with paralysis when I saw the mutilated face of my sister's corpse staring back at me. I'm trapped, Jeremy. I struggled to keep aim. How dare this thing pretend to be her? It won't let me go, and it won't let you go either. We can be together again. It's much nicer than going home to an empty house and unliving parents. She held her hand out to me. Trust me, brother. Please. My trigger finger felt as though struck with a serious case of arthritis. Janessa took a step towards me. Wait, no. It's not Janessa. Why did I suddenly forget that? Feed the forest with me, Jeremy. It's so much better than being dead. Prove it. At last I pulled the trigger. The creature hollered in pain as it fell to the ground. I hit a lung, which wouldn't be enough. I aimed the gun at the heart, but failed to pull the trigger again as it rolled over and jumped back to its feet. Within seconds, it transformed from a corpse of my sister to its massive dark skeletal form with massive antlers. My mind was caught between fight and flight. I stood there aiming my gun, but desperately wanting to flee. As it rushed towards me, I chose a latter option. I rushed over to the bag I had left near my tent. Inside was a weapon that I built myself. As I rushed over, I could tell I wasn't going to outrun it. I fired another shot. The bullet lodged itself into the neck of the beast. It cried out once more, buying me a bit of time to get to the bag. Why didn't I have it unzipped? As I tried to open it, the window go rushed towards me again. Just like the day of Janessa's death, I ran from the campsite, further into the forest, history repeating itself. I wasn't going to fail to avenge my sister. My parents weren't going to lose their last remaining child, all because I couldn't let it go. After at least several minutes, I somehow managed to keep out running it. I refused to slow down and look behind my shoulder. As I kept running, I noticed that I had gone in some sort of circle. Up ahead of me was the campsite. I had a chance to grab the bag and pull out the weapon. The closer I came to the campsite, the louder the Wendigo's footsteps became, and I could almost feel the wind as the creature tried to claw me. Once I reached the campsite, I put out my hand, clutching the bag. It felt like almost too great a risk to put the gun back in my pocket, but I needed it free to pull out the weapon. I managed to do this just with my left hand, pulling out the long metal spike. I built it in such a way that the spike would shoot out at a push of a button. The Wendigo wasn't going to slow down until it had me. I had no choice. I had to turn around. I would have to have perfect timing. I had to collect my debt from the creature that took my twin sister. Chew on this, you son of a bitch. I turned around, pressing the button that shot the spike out. Less than a foot from my face was the Wendigo. Its cry so loud it hurt my ears, and they began to ring. I had done it. The spike pierced the heart. Weakly, the Wendigo tried to swipe at me, but somehow lacked the strength. The next part was a gamble. I pulled up my gun and shot it in the head. It wasn't going to be enough to end the Wendigo, assuming what I read was correct. I rushed over to where I dropped the bag. Inside was the silver axe I had also designed myself. When I returned, the creature was still conscious, letting out agonizing cries. I felt no sympathy. I hacked off its wrist first. Its claws were the biggest threat, and I wanted them gone. Despite the weightlifting I've been doing, it took over a dozen hacks to remove the first long-fingered hand. I pulled out my gun and shot it in the head again. It subdued the creature long enough for me to remove the second hand, and then I began on its head. As I began walking up, I again found myself screaming at the creature. 
I demanded it stay dead, calling it every insulting name that came to mind. Once I had hacked most of my way through its head, I pulled it off. I kicked it a couple feet away. The Wendigo no longer moved. It took about an hour, but I managed to put each limb, the head, and the torso in trash bags that I had brought along. One by one, I carried them back to the campsite. I lit another fire, burning each bag. It took until dawn for me to burn the entire body. I left the torso for last. It was a struggle, but I managed to remove the heart, ripped it to pieces, and placed it in a silver box. After locking it, I looked around the site and decided to leave everything except my gun and box behind. I was never particularly religious, but in the months leading up to my fight, I had gotten to know a priest in a church in my area. Luckily for me, he was there when I arrived with the silver box. His face was several shades paler when I showed it to him. Nevertheless, he escorted me to the back of the church with a pair of shovels and helped me bury it. Once done, I sat there, suddenly flooded with overwhelming emotions. I'd done it. My sister's killer was dead. Its body was burned, its heart in pieces and buried. Janessa, I cried out. I kept my promise. I killed it. The Wendigo can't hurt anyone else. It won't kill anyone else. I placed my lowered head into my hands and continued to cry. I'm sorry I wasn't braver before. I placed some flowers at my sister's grave an hour later. I talked to her tombstone as though she was listening. I like to believe that she was and that she was pleased with my accomplishment. Afterwards, I returned home and slept through the day and the night. Once the morning came, I heard some noises downstairs. I went down to see my parents were home, sitting down for breakfast. They stopped and looked over at me, saying nothing. I walked over and pulled up a seat. I had no appetite at all. How was your trip? Where did you guys go? My parents exchanged looks before my father replied. We went to go visit your aunt and uncle. Did you, you know, enjoy it? I had difficulty keeping my chin from quivering as I lowered my head again. Jeremy, sweetie, what's wrong? Both my mother and father got up and came over to me. Why do you keep leaving me alone? God damn it, I'm your only kid left. Do you not give a shit about me? They hugged me tightly, offering apologies. I could have sworn I felt another pair of hands on my shoulders. The light touch was the most comforting of all. I really hope Janessa is proud of me, but a new task was ahead of me now. A harder task, perhaps. I was going to have to figure out how to reconcile with my parents. Our family had been broken long before her death, but I know with some effort, things could be better than this. I hope she continues to give me the strength to put myself together as I progress into adulthood. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I suppose that's a good way to start this. My thoughts are a bit jumbled, so you have to bear with me. Chasing the high is how I spent all my time. I'd skip out on bills if it meant I could afford going to one of those few escape rooms in the country I hadn't been to yet. That was my biggest hobby for a time. Skydiving and other daredevil activities had stopped working a long time ago. They were always the same thing. If you've done it once, you've done it a million times. Escape rooms though, they had new puzzles to figure out each time. I guess it was only a matter of time before I'd grow out of those as well. At the age of 23, I discovered urban exploration. In my mind, 
This was basically the same thing as escape rooms, except there aren't any actors. The dangers of being caught and fined only fueled the fire in me more. I made it my mission to find and document spirits. Of course, this was better in my head than it did in execution. Try and try I might, but I couldn't find anything worth sharing with the world. Name almost any haunted place in the United States. I've been there, found nothing, and went home with doubts. Sure, I had some stories. One time I fell into an open elevator shaft and caught a rusty wire to save myself. It sounds cooler on paper, I promise. Another time I heard footsteps and voices on the floor above me in an abandoned asylum. I ran up and was met with another group. Disappointment isn't a strong enough word. Until recently, the scariest encounter I had ever had was stumbling upon a deranged homeless man who chased me out of an old-fashioned farmhouse with a knife. That one revived my interest for a time, at least until I realized the odds of something like that happening again were slim to none. If you couldn't already tell, I had a bit of a problem. Some would call me insane. For this reason, I had no friends, and my family avoided me like the plague. That was okay. I understood. My lifestyle was a lot to keep up with, so I stayed busy either way. Well, I guess I did have one friend, even though I had never met him in person. We got to know each other through an urban exploration forum. If you thought I was obsessed, this guy brought it to a whole nother level. His name was Derek. After a few interactions, we gave each other our real life phone numbers and kept each other updated on our findings. This guy had the lowdown on everything. He knew places Google didn't know about. I lost countless jobs due to my lifestyle. It was tough finding an employer who wouldn't get mad at me for leaving days at a time with no warning. How I made it work for as long as I did is just as much of a mystery as it probably is to you. Call it good luck in the getting hired department or something. If I lost a job, I could find another one pretty quick. Of course, this meant I never worked anywhere for a long time. But hey, if I ever caught something worthwhile on camera, I could set myself up for a while. As you can assume, this started seeming more and more like a fairy tale day by day. My belief in the paranormal had dwindled to near absolute zero. I went a while wondering what was next for me. Doubt that I would find the next high was creeping more and more into my subconscious every day. I was now 25. I had spent two years wasting my life and had nothing to show for it. Just a sketchy job history and an empty bank account. It's not like I could do much with all the footage either. What was I going to do? Incriminate myself by publishing videos of me breaking into almost every place of interest in the United States? Surprisingly, I began to accept my fate. It was finally time to nut up and fix my life. For weeks, I had tried reconnecting with my family and got back to speaking terms with most of them. My old friends gave me the silent treatment, but honestly, I don't blame them. Life was going okay for a time. That was until I got a text from Derek. It read, Hey Tom, I got intel on an abandoned asylum in Montana. I know those are your favorite. Going to check it out in a week. Supposed to be the real deal. Many missing person cases in the area. I'll send you coordinates, so if you don't hear from me, you know where to look. You know me though, I always carry. 
Attached was the image with coordinates. I'd be lying if I said his text didn't pique my interest, especially considering I lived in northern Idaho and this place wasn't that far away. I traveled all across the country before. This would be nothing. But my life was starting to move forward. I couldn't let this stop that. Plus, I knew that Derek would update me if he found anything. Even if there wasn't, he'd text me something like, it was a bust, or something along those lines. Fast forward two weeks. I'm ashamed to say that I spent every day for the last week waiting for an update. It was getting to me, so I text Derek. Hey Derek, find anything in Montana? It wasn't like him to not update me right away. As I said, he's really into this stuff, and it was like he couldn't wait to tell me everything once he returned home. I wouldn't have been surprised if I got a response within a few minutes. Fast forward another two weeks, and no response ever came. This left me in a moral dilemma. What if something happened to Derek? What if he needed my help? The adrenaline-fueled habits returned to my mind, and I'm sure you can guess what happened next. This story wouldn't exist if I didn't do exactly what you expect. I had no info on the asylum other than the location, but that would have to do. I began my drive around noon. I'll spare you the nonsense of my driving excursion, considering I was held up a number of times by different annoyances. I arrived at 10 p.m. It was completely dark, just the way I like it. Arriving, it was a one-way-in, one-way-out road that was roughly five miles, if I had to guess. The place was eerie, to say the least. This place was decrepit. The windows were still intact, surprisingly, and it was six stories. This asylum was massive. Pulling into the giant gravel parking lot, there were no other cars in sight. Okay, so maybe nothing happened to Derek. His car would still be here if he was, right? There's always an off chance that he could hide his car, but considering the desolation of the surroundings, there would be no point. I grabbed my camera and began to walk. Reaching the steps, I felt a chill. How I missed that feeling. It's always worth checking if the front door is accessible. A lock can be told whether or not the front doors are locked or unlocked. If they were unlocked, it could be a hotspot for locals. If not, it could be moderately patrolled. The giant double door swung wide open without a budge. I was instantly hit with a smell of rot. It wasn't just normal rot. Trust me. Over the past couple years, I've smelled it all. This was putrid, like iron mixed with literal shit. Naturally, it was dark, but my military-grade flashlight lit the place up like it was daylight. My handheld cannon also had night vision, so seeing was no issue. In the main room, there was a front desk and three hallways, one leading straight and one to either side of me. Odd. Usually, there would be stairs here. But judging by the outside of this building, it could be older than any other that I had explored yet. I couldn't wait to see what I would find. Figuring that the doors were placed in the dead center, I decided to flip a coin. Heads, I'd go right. Tails, I'd go left. I fished a quarter out of my pocket and flipped it. Missing the catch, the quarter bounced off the ground. The sound echoed down all three hallways. It seemed to never end. Once the sound reached what seemed to be forever away, the sound started to echo back towards me. I'm no expert, but this didn't seem right. 
I was then smacked square in the forehead by something. It's done like hell. I heard the quarter hit the ground again. What the hell? Did that quarter just come flying down the hallway and hit me? No way it could bounce without velocity that I was hit with. Not that the former made sense either. Anybody with a logical brain would have left right then and there. But I was intrigued, not scared. Dreams of catching something and becoming famous began flooding my mind in the same way it used to. I shined a flashlight down on my feet to find the quarter. Yep, this place must be the real deal. The quarter was sitting on its side. I don't know the odds of that happening. I had never seen it before. I thought for a second, if it was to hit my forehead while facing forward and going forward was never an option, something really wanted me to go away. If I was to catch this something on film, that would be the way to go. So forward I went. I walked about a hundred yards when I came across the stairs leading up. The building was really bigger on the inside because there was still a lot of hallway to go. I ascended the stairs and reached the second floor. Looking back, I don't know how I didn't find it odd that the building was six stories, but the stairs only went up one floor. I was met with another hallway. Doors to individual rooms were littered both ways. Wheelchairs and other expected debris were littered everywhere. I decided to head right, the same direction I was heading on the first floor. I was curious how long this hallway really went. I pivoted to the right, and this is where things got real. Ten feet in front of me was a girl in a gown, long black hair covering her face. Holy shit, I caught something. I checked the camera, and she showed up clear as day. Ma'am, do you need help? I asked. I was ecstatic. This was something no one has ever captured before. The clearest footage possible. This was bound to go viral. I took a couple steps forward towards her. Leave, she whispered. I couldn't think of much to say, but I managed a quick, why? Leave while you still have the chance. You don't have much time, she said. What do you mean? I asked. This was unreal. Not only did I capture her spirit on film, but I was having a conversation with it. Derek wasn't kidding. I mumbled under my breath. Derek didn't listen either. She instantly whispered. Wait, what does she mean? Derek didn't listen? This was everything I hoped for, but if the spirits here are this bold, why did Derek never say anything? I bet he's at home thinking about how to publish his own footage right now. That asshole. He was going to become famous first. I can't believe he didn't tell me about this. Money does strange things to people. In retrospect, the magnitude of the situation hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm speaking to a spirit, face to face, and she has told me to leave. Here I am, filming like an idiot. Maybe I should go. I checked the camera again to make sure I was still capturing this. I was. I have what I need. Maybe I should just go. I took a step back and the woman let out a scream and ran into the room closest to her. Okay, yeah, I'm leaving. This is too much even for me. I turned around and before I could even react, I was cold clocked across the head. I hit the ground and the camera and flashlight flew off my head. I didn't try to retrieve them. I got back on my feet and took a few steps back. Standing in front of me was a man dressed as a surgeon. 
He was muscular. Too muscular. This guy made Arnold look small. The look in his eyes was crazed, to say the least. In his hand was a giant knife. I turned around and continued down the hallway as fast as I could. I could hear him running, trailing behind me, but he seemed to be slower than me. I ran for what seemed like ages, till I came to a cafeteria. It is what you would imagine it to be, large and open. I'd be trapped if I stayed, but I couldn't turn around now. The surgeon was still stomping his way down the hallway. The kitchen was my only option. I hopped through the serving window and was impressed by the size of the kitchen. I chose to hide inside one of the ovens. There were five ovens in total and everything else was too wide open to risk. I climbed into the last one and held my breath the best I could. The surgeon entered maybe 30 seconds later. He was searching everything, pulling counters off the walls with brute strength and flipping them over. He got to the ovens and searched the first, then the second, third, fourth. He placed his hands on the door for mine and that's when I heard a noise in the cafeteria. He must have heard it too because he let out a guttural scream and released the oven to find the source. I just might be saved. I waited about five minutes before I finally climbed out. I don't know what the sound that spared my life in that moment was, but I wasn't going to stand around to question it. I creeped back to the haunting hallway and walked as lightly as I could to find the stairs. I was going to get out of here now. A long while in, I was met once again by this woman. You need to hurry. She told me. How much further do I have? I questioned. You're getting close to the stairs. Stay quiet and once you reach the first floor, run. Each floor has an evil entity haunting it. This floor is the safest. The entity on the first floor is not as dumb as this one. Stay safe. There's hundreds of us trapped here. Now go. I wanted to ask her why she was helping me, but she was gone once again. I eventually saw something shining in the distance. It was my flashlight. I could start running, grab my flashlight, grab my camera that had to be near, and get out of here. I began my jog, but just as I did, I heard that scream again. The silhouette of the surgeon was on the other side of the flashlight. He was closer to it than I. But remembering how slow he was... I might be able to outrun him. I knew what was behind me and I couldn't risk getting caught again with nowhere to hide. I sprinted faster than I ever have in my life. His pace quickened as well. For a time, it looked like I might beat him, but once I got closer, I realized the flashlight must have flown pretty far. He was going to beat me. I'm screwed. I'd have to risk juking him. There was no other option. I'd never felt this kind of adrenaline before. We met at the stairs at the same time and I went to dive down the steps, but it was useless. He caught me and slammed me to the ground. He was too powerful. He slammed a knife onto my chest and I felt a cold liquid cover my torso. Tom! Someone yelled. Next thing I knew, someone tackled the surgeon off of me. I scrambled to my feet and flew down the stairs, not questioning why they knew my name. 
I reached the first floor and began another mad dash to escape this hell. The floor was littered with blood. It was everywhere. I could hear hundreds of voices telling me to run. It was overbearing, but I did just that. I reached the door, went through them like they weren't even there, and flew down the steps. Then, I hit an invisible wall. Looking out into the parking lot, there were cars everywhere, mine included. I suppose I got everything I hoped for. It wasn't worth it though, because in the end, it cost me my life. Halloween ain't scary. I've known that ever since I've been old enough to know what it was. I know it as I arrived to school in the old white sheet with two holes cut out. It's my costume and it will do. As I close my locker, I'm greeted with a boo from some dumb kid wearing a scream mask. He must think he's pretty clever. I shrug at him and start in the other direction. I know it as my teacher lines us up for the annual 8th grade haunted house. I walk through, hounded by plastic skeletons and fake blood, a mechanical scream and crackling. It's exhausting. I don't even flinch. I know it as the teacher dismisses us for the day with a warning to be careful trick-or-treating tonight. Beware of pranksters and child snatchers and people who put razor blades in candy. Stay with your friends or a trusted adult. Come home at a reasonable hour. Don't make yourself vulnerable to strangers. I know it as the teacher is talking nonsense that trick-or-treating isn't risky or dangerous. It's an excuse. It's an opportunity. I know it as I know that statistically speaking, you're far more likely to be harmed by a family member than a complete stranger. Same goes for kidnapping. I know it as I walk the streets at night, clutching my worm pillowcase, rustling with wrappers, and hope against hope that day, reality will defy the odds. That I'll be taken. That some lunatic in a white van will come up behind me, grab me, throw me in his trunk. I know it as I realize the front porch lights of all the houses are turned off. It's time to go home. For the first time today, I feel fear. I know it as I walk home as slowly as possible and think about next year. I'll be in high school. People will begin to look at me funny when they answer the door. They'll say I'm too old. It's okay. I'll just wear this ghost costume again so no one sees my face. And I'll do the same thing the year after that. I'll do it for as long as I have to. I know it as I scramble to suck down as many candies as possible while I can. Damn. No razor blades. I hear footsteps. Halloween ain't scary. It's a special time of year. The leaves have started to change color and blanket the ground below the now bare trees. The fronts of the supermarkets are lined with decorations, costumes, and candies. The spirit Halloween stores, timely specters that they are, reanimate and set up shop all across town. And every year, as the season begins to creep up on us, like a routine plague, I think the same thing. God, I hate Halloween. There's always so much work to do. And somehow, despite the weeks of warning, 
it always seems to creep up on me. Take this year for instance, a week away and I've only just settled on the perfect house. It's easy if you know where to look. This year, I settled on a two-story at the end of the one-way street who lives out of town, put it up for market after their house flipping project ran out of money. Their asking price was too high, so it quietly sat on the market for a while. Sad for them, perfect for me. Of course, my work has only just begun. I need to get decorations for the front entry, supplies for the harvesting, a van for transportation, candy for trick-or-treaters, and a fake ID for any police officers who come by. It'll all be worth it in the end. See, when the light's on out front, the children come knocking. Some have parents, other travel with friends, and an unfortunate few walk the dark streets of Halloween night all alone. Halloween is the best holiday of the year. No, not because of sweets and costumes, though the outfits that some people come up with are really something, but because of the excitement, everyone is anticipating the coming holidays, no one more so than yours truly. You see, I'm a pumpkin farmer. It's sort of a tradition at this point. Each generation has improved and upgraded the business, making it grow bigger and better every time. This year, it's my go. I spent the last two years on this plan now, and it's going to make the biggest, best pumpkin patch you'll ever see. You see, my invention is a seed, but not just any seed. I made them so that all they need to grow is a little soil, and they'll be growing faster than a weed and manure. My pumpkins will be the best in town. No one will stand a chance. Currently, it's Halloween night, and I'm waiting to try out my babies. That is what they are at this point. I spent so long loving them and nurturing them. I wait in my house for the first visitor to arrive. I hear the doorbell and go to open the door. I'm met by a lone girl, about 16 or 17. She's dressed in a short cheerleader dress, covered in blood, fake. I know real blood when I see it and currently trying to discreetly hide the cigarette she has smoking. Trick or treat, she says, looking completely bored out of her mind. I smile at her, but she doesn't react. Instead, holding out her hand, obviously gesturing for sweets. My smile doesn't falter as I give her a single chocolate piece, nor when she huffs in annoyance and struts down my garden path, stopping only to flick her half-lit cigarette into my flower bed and eat the piece of chocolate I gave her. It doesn't falter when she starts to choke and turns around in horror and confusion, showing the large, pumpkin-sized lump in her stomach, slowly growing larger and larger with each terrified breath she takes. When she collapses on the ground, the pumpkin having finally ruptured her stomach and torn through her skin, I smile wider. My babies worked wonderfully. I turn to go back inside my house, but out of the corner of my eye, I see a young boy walking up the path, candy bag in tow, completely oblivious to the corpse just feet away from him, hidden under a sea of vines and an island of pumpkin, smiling just as happy as I am. It seems I had another walking bag of soil up for grabs. I hold up my chocolate, my babies, excitement building as I imagine how big this pumpkin patch will be. 
Halloween really is the best holiday of the year. Thomas hated Halloween. It's a combination of everything he disliked. Crowds, darkness, and fake monsters. Fake monsters were the worst though, because how do you even know if it's fake? There was one silver lining to the day he dreaded. Candy. Tommy could never resist the sweet treats. Since his mother never passed them out or anything to the neighborhood children, going house to house was the only option. After finally finding the courage to go trick-or-treating, he started down the street. The pumpkin costume his mother had stuffed him into was a bit tight, but he waddled persistently. It didn't take long to fill the bottom of the plastic pumpkin with licorice and jawbreakers. Most of the houses just left the lights on without adding any extra decorations in their yard. Those were the places he felt more comfortable approaching but they never seemed to be giving away anything good. With searching eyes, Tommy noticed the strobe light of a home not too far away. The place seemed to have a decent amount of money, according to their display. Tommy's shaky legs dragged him slowly towards the house. As he approached the yard, he could make out more than an impressive scene. At the front gate, barbed wire was weaved around the archway. At least three different types of strobe lights flashed brightly, giving everything an old movie effect. To the left of the large tree stood something that took the breath out of Tommy's mouth. The decorative creature stood at least two stories high. It stretched pale green flesh shone in the moonlight. The twiggish body ended with a rotting pumpkin head. Its face pointed downwards at its fine-like fingers. The appendages held a mannequin child about the same age as Tommy. The child's torso was ripped down the middle in a grotesque fashion. At the creature's feet laid full-size candy bars and fake blood. Fake monsters. Tommy heard a voice in his head remind him of the fact. Despite that, his heart was still thundering loudly in his pudgy chest. A neighborhood kid's laugh broke in the distance and snapped him from his frightened trance. Fake monsters, he told himself, and started walking towards the scattered treasure. Fake monsters, he kept reminding himself. The thing's legs not far away. Then Tommy suddenly remembered something. He turned around, back towards his home, and could barely see it in the distance. He looked back at his shoes, just as the thought broke. Why didn't he recognize these decorations? Before terror finally set in, a body fell in front of his feet. The corpse splattered blood across the orange outfit. A scream had barely left his mouth when the world was ripped out from under him. The vines wrapped around his body, then began to rip. Thomas's last comprehensible thought was that he heard talking in the distance. Let's check out that house. They gotta have good stuff. Unless you're scared. Then the fake monster tore open his body. Two days after Christmas and no great stir was through the house. The done to death holiday tales were coming to an end thankfully. I waited for the tales of killer snowman and invaders who aren't Santa Claus to fade away from the internet's craving eye. 
everyone was at work or gone home and it was just me and my computer which is why I want to regale the web with yet another holiday tale. I have a neighbor, a strange old cross-eyed man who we'll call Mr. Halloween. He's harmless, I think. The neighborhood I live in, despite being a rough town, is very peaceful. Only once has a house been robbed here, and when the perpetrators were caught, they were found in the cells completely burned to death. Strange noises emanate from Mr. Halloween's house the night it happened. I don't know how he got that nickname, Mr. Halloween. Maybe it's because he's a spooky guy, but no one knows his real name. My parents don't talk about him. Kids stay away from his house. I often chance a hello in the mornings and he'll just look at me with his emerald eyes and a grunt. That's okay though, because I'm neighborly and someone interacts with the old man. Everyone wins. What's strange to me is that on Christmas night, every year there's a great commotion about his house. Generally, I just ignore it, but this year, I chanced to look through his curtains. All I saw through his window was him dressed in his Sunday best in the living room of his house, talking to someone. The next night, as I wake up at 3am, someone tries to break in. I saw them try to pry the door, and then I saw a pentagram light up in Mr. Halloween's living room. There is a blood-curdling scream, and the would-be burglar went up in flames. I think Mr. Halloween knows that I saw what happened. I also think he knows that I'm quite grateful. I don't mind it, and no one knows. What's wrong with your friendly neighborhood Satanist? Some people grow up in cities. Some people grow up in the middle of nowhere. I like to believe both of them have their perks and fallbacks. Growing up in the city might mean missing out on roaming the town with your friends, free of adult supervision. Growing up in a small town, surrounded by a everyone-knows-everyone community, ensures many dangers are overlooked. I grew up in a small town and always pitied those who missed out on the freedoms I was blessed with. That is until that day. You see, I never imagined anything bad could happen to me. No one ever does, I suppose. Sure, we had some urban legends, like how the abandoned church had a female spirit that could be seen in the bell tower at midnight. This myth was busted by a few of my buddies and I after breaking in and climbing in ourselves for that up-close-and-personal view. We never saw anything, but Robert swore he did. He took off running down the steps, screaming, and when we finally caught up with him, he was outside dry heaving and had pissed his pants. Unless spirits have the ability to control a living person's bladder, this turned out to be just a rumor to scare us. Needless to say, he was made fun of endlessly for getting scared about nothing. Robert was always the type to try to scare us. He was a practical joker. And though no one else thought so, I thought he was just trying to really sell it. Looking back on it, I think him peeing himself would have been too far to bring the joke. The thing that did scare me, however, was the cornfields. If the adults and older kids really wanted to scare us, this would have been the most effective way to do it. For context of the story, this takes place in the late 90s. 
I was 14 and pretty much free of any of the few strict rules my parents had on me. Again, I lived in a small town. The population was just over 1,000, nestled in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. Summers were the best. No school, no responsibilities. Endless land to explore, and a close group of friends I could always count on being available. My best buddy, Cole, lived two miles outside of town. He was a no-bullshit, straightforward guy. Even so, he was the type of person to have on your side because he'd get to the bottom of anything. We always had the best time on his family's farm. Four-wheelers, go-karts. Hell, if we were lucky, we would even be able to drive his brother's old Bronco and rip up the land behind the small forest in his backyard. You're probably wondering how this ties in with the overall story. Well, I'd often hang out there late at night, sometimes as late as 1 or 2 a.m. This would mean I would have to bike a lonely, desolate road to get back home, surrounded by cornfields on both sides. I'd also have to pass an old graveyard around the halfway point. That part, surprisingly, never really bothered me. The only fortunate part about any of this was Cole's long driveway. I could use it to gain as much speed as I could to bolt those two miles. Riding in the middle of the night, alone, I don't think the paranoia is unreasonable. This goes beyond paranoia. I could swear I sense something else with me. Every single time, it gets worse. Have you ever driven past cornfields with a passenger window down? If you haven't, try it sometime. You'll notice the sound of your tires reverberates through the stalks of corn. Now imagine that, but on a bike, by yourself in the middle of the night. The sound was strikingly similar to as if someone was running through the cornfield alongside me. Again, this was the 90s, so it's not like I could really research fucking wavelengths in the corn. Being a 14-year-old kid with a chip on his shoulder, I was not going to confess my paranoia to anyone either. I remember how much everyone made fun of Robert for pissing himself. What would they say to me if I spoke about this? So I did what anyone with a brain would do. I tried my best to ignore it. Moving on. It was a night in August. Clear skies and no wind. I'll spare you the details of the day. To summarize, I went to Cole's house around 5pm. We spent the day riding the trails we had built and played Super Nintendo late into the night. Cole was passing all my high scores in every game we played. I didn't mind, but he kept on insisting I was getting mad about it. I wasn't. Time flew by and before I knew it, it was 1am. It was time to go. Staying the night would have been preferred because my nerves were on high alert, like a sixth sense. But staying the night was something we never did, for some reason or another. We said our goodbyes and I stepped out into the cool night. I hopped on my bike, gained my usual speed, and I was off. I got about a quarter mile down the road, still pedaling as hard as I could. The sound from the cornfield was overbearing. You would have sworn that Cole's dog was running with me, just one row in. The smart thing to do would have been not to think about it keep pedaling, and keep my eyes on the road. This sound though, it was getting to me. It was driving me mad. I slowed my pace a bit, and with it, the sound died down. Okay, it's just the noise of the bike. 
The next thing that happened should have been a red flag. The noise stopped completely. I look over the cornfield and nothing looks off. Despite the logic I felt, I take my eyes off the cornfield and put them straight ahead once more. Right in front of me was a black figure. I had no time to react before I was clotheslined off my bike. I hit the ground hard. I was dazed and it sounded like a flashbang had gone off. Knowing I was in danger, I tried to get back on my feet and run, but my attempt was fruitless. I was being dragged by my foot towards the cornfield. I didn't take the time to look at this thing. I started kicking and flailing, doing anything I could to make it lose its grip it had on me. I lunged myself forward with my hands and kicked out with my free leg as hard as I could. Connecting with the face of this thing, its grip slipped and it fell backwards with my shoe. I got up and took off running. I didn't take the time to figure out which direction I was facing. Instead, I just ran. I could hear it gaining on me. The footsteps were rapidly approaching. I saw a single light in front of me. It was the graveyard. I knew that there was no way that this would help me, but at least I knew I was halfway. Reaching the graveyard and standing in front of the gates, completely exhausted, I realized the footsteps had completely disappeared. Where did it go? My question was soon answered when I saw the creature's silhouette just past the graveyard, standing on the road. What was I going to do? I turned around, thinking about running back to my friend's house. But as I did, I heard the same noise in the cornfield. The fastest I had ever heard it yet. Within what had to be two seconds, it was now standing in the road between Cole's house and I. How was it so fast? This can't be the end. I have so much more life to live. But the odd thing was, it just stood there, as if it was waiting for me. Out of options, I stood staring at the silhouette for what had to be 10 minutes. I felt sick and I was about to pass out. Whether that be from the fall, the exhaustion, or fear, I leaned up against the gate, slashed down, and collapsed. I woke up some time later. It's impossible to tell you how long I was out for, or if I had passed out. I don't know. But when I glanced up, I finally got my first real look at the creature. His head was poking through the cornstalks across the street. He had on a hoodie. He had those bright, glowing, white eyes and the whitest grin I had ever seen. He looked like a serial killer, about to devour his last meal. I don't know how else to explain that grin. His skin was dark and leathery, as if it had been rotting away for some time. The fear I felt was more than I could take, and I passed out once more. I awoke with the biggest headache I had ever experienced. Imagine dropping an anchor on your head. Opening my eyes seemed like a task far too difficult. The memories of the previous night began flooding my mind. It couldn't have been real, could it? No, there's no way. I opened my eyes to find myself in bed. Everything would be fine. It had just been a nightmare. Except, my bed isn't this hard and the birds are never this loud. Upon opening my eyes, it was confirmed. It was all real. I jolted up, remembering where the man had been. But there was nothing. I walked back to my bike, 
which was still in the middle of the road, untouched, and pedaled slowly until I got home. It was apparently still pretty early, just past 7am to be exact. Too early for my parents to be awake, to start getting ready for work. Still exhausted, I laid in my bed, hoping sleep would take me over. It never did. I laid awake in bed all day and passed out later that night. After that night, I became recluse. The runner, as I later would dub this creature, ran through my mind every single day. I didn't go out anymore that summer, despite friends coming over constantly to check up on me. They eventually gave up, the same way I gave up on making sense of that day's events. School was back in session and life moved on. You see, legends like this should end after a one-time encounter. The only way these things come back to haunt you is if you let it. I made the biggest mistake of my life at the end of that school year. Maybe the second biggest mistake. It's tough to say. Either way, if I would have kept my mouth shut, this would have been the end of the story. There's a chance I could have gotten past this at some point. But no, I had to fuck it all up. Robert was always a close friend. It was only natural for him to pull me aside one day after school. He cared. He always did. Remembering the incident at the church, I thought he would believe me. If there was someone to open up to, it had to be him. He basically pinned me into the corner, explained how everyone was concerned about me. He said he just wanted to know what was going on. So I told him everything. It felt good to finally get it off my chest. He was silent for a time. Turns out, I was right to think that he believed me. He brought up the night at the church. We hung out that night, talked about both our stories and the lasting effects of them for hours. Summer started and I still wasn't ready to go out. Robert would come over from time to time and I could tell the fact that I wouldn't go out really bothered him. It built up for a couple months until it was August once more. It was an average day. I spent the morning reading and playing video games in the living room. It was around 6pm when I got a knock at the door. It was Robert and Cole. I had been right that Robert would trust me. Even so, I was wrong that he would keep it to himself. Cole questioned me about that night immediately once I opened the door. Asked me why I let a fairy tales get in my head. This was classic Cole behavior. Always the logical, get to the bottom of things type. I didn't know what to say, but that didn't matter. He already made up his mind on how to bring this to a close. His plan was to bring Robert and I to the same road at midnight and take 10 steps in the cornfield. He would prove once and for all that there was nothing to be afraid of. It goes without saying that I begged him not to do it. I'm ashamed to say that my pleas came with a few tears. Of course he didn't listen, but what else could I do? I couldn't let him go out there and potentially be killed by the runner. I had to go with him. So we pumped up my bike's long since deflated tires. We waited until 11 o'clock and set off into the night. My parents not questioning why, just happy to see me finally leave the confines of their home. The ride was silent. No rustling in the corn. No conversation. No anything. Just the sound of our tires on the gravel. 
We were about a hundred yards short of the graveyard when Colt stopped and said, Here. I would have continued my pleas. I would have said anything if I could. But no, I was too terrified to choke out any words. Colt grabbed his pocket watch and waited until it struck exactly midnight. I assume he was trying to subdue Robert's fears of the church by meeting the specific time of his encounter as well. He began walking into the corn. One step, two steps, three steps. He got to nine when he let out a blood-curdling scream. My fight or flight kicked in and I wouldn't let Cole be taken by that thing. I tore into the cornfield after him and found him, laughing. Nothing had happened. He was fine. You really believe this shit, don't you? He said, while barely containing his tears of laughter. Maybe he was right. Maybe there was nothing to fear at all. Maybe, just maybe, I had imagined everything. Even though I was mad at his prank, I felt relieved and let out a nervous giggle of my own. We walked back out of the cornfield together and looked up to see Robert in the middle of the road, sitting on his bike. That's not funny, Cole, he yelled. We were climbing out of the ditch, looking down at our feet to ensure we didn't trip and slide back down. Robert, look out, Cole shouted. Great, another prank. But no, the runner. He was standing right behind Robert. The same sick, twisted grin stretching from ear to ear. Robert never had a chance. The runner grabbed a hold of Robert and began dragging him and his bike into the cornfield. Robert screamed, and we tried our damnedest to catch up with him. It was useless. Once they were in the cornfield, they were gone. The runner was fast and had been dragging him what had to be 60 miles per hour through the cornfield. Robert's screams continued for minutes on end, miles and miles into the corn. That's the end. Robert was never found. Search parties looked for him for weeks. His parents haven't given up the search to this day. No one ever believed us, and honestly, I don't blame them. I don't know what the runner did with him. Cole never forgave himself and ended up going insane. I guess his logical brain couldn't process it. Maybe the guilt got to him. I don't know. What I do know is that I now live as far from the cornstalks as I can get. I live in the desert of Nevada and now try my best to lead a normal life day by day. I don't know if the runner is still out there. People go missing without a trace all the time. Perhaps the night of my first encounter, the runner didn't run to the other side of the graveyard. There's a chance it could have been a friend of his. But after seeing how fast he dragged Robert, it's safe to say either is possible. I don't know for sure, and I hope to never find out. I don't have a definite reason as to why the runner didn't take me when I was at the gates of the graveyard either. My best guess is that he can only traverse the cornfields and the roads in between. But again, I don't know for certain. So I ask, what do you hear when you're whizzing by a cornfield? Do you hear nothing? Or do you hear the faint sound of footsteps? Which is worse? Maybe if you hear nothing at all, it's already... For some context, I'm a horror narrator. Creepypastas, no sleep, urban legends. If it's scary, I read it. 
I hover right around 50 subscribers, so by no means am I a large channel, but that's okay with me. I read it for me, it acts almost like a type of therapy. I suffer from PTSD, depression, and a host of medical issues, and the stories have become an escape. While I read mostly for myself, I do have a small group of friends who enjoy hearing me read, so twice weekly, I host live streams on my channel. It's a little twisted, but reading terrifying things brings me peace and reassures me that my reality could always be worse. That was until recently, at least. A few weeks ago, I was scrolling through Reddit looking for new stories, and I came across an author. Her story was strange and poorly edited, but I was getting closer and closer to my stream start time, so I went ahead and shot her a message. She was more than enthusiastic to have me read her story. Little did I know that that was the beginning of the end for my YouTube career. That night's stream was as normal as it could be. My friends were joking and laughing in the comments. The dogs didn't bark and my kids managed to be quiet the whole time. Truth be told, I read her story, but I'm not entirely sure anyone actually noticed it. It was nothing more than a space filler for me. Something to prolong the time I got to spend reading and having fun with my friends. I don't mean to be rude, her story was utterly unremarkable. It was there, it existed, but it wasn't the type of story that causes great fanfare or that helps you gain subscribers. I didn't notice her in the stream, she surely didn't comment. It's not hard for me to notice a newcomer amongst all of my friends. She and her story slipped my mind until a few days later after my stream. She sent me a message telling me how great the stream was and how she had listened to the streams I had recorded in the past over and over again on a loop. It was strange and slightly uncomfortable, but I figured she had just been excited to hear her story read. I responded telling her I was glad she enjoyed my narration and thanked her for letting me read her story. I brushed off the message and went to bed. I can't say that my sleep was restless, but I could say I'm not a fan of being woken up by frantic phone calls from my friends Apparently, at some point when I was watching the inside of my eyelids, this writer decided to start posting letters to me on Reddit. My friends are like me and have no life, so it didn't take long for them to see the letters and for them to start calling and texting me to warn me about the letters. It was like they were taking turns bombarding me until they knew I was safe. After responding to the text and returning the missed calls, I sat down in front of my laptop, trying to work up the courage to see what she had written. The hair on the back of my neck stood up on end as I was reading her rambling about the voices in her head, how excessively she had been listening to me. She rambled about being sort of a demon and quoted Disney movies with ramblings about murder. I didn't have time to process it before a new message notification popped up. It was this girl. She had messaged me again and sent me a new story asking me to read it. Out of pure, morbid curiosity, I skimmed the story, and not only was it horribly written, it followed no plotline and made no sense at all. Not wanting to be rude, and being worried that she may be a serial killer, I sent her a message back. I told her as gently as I could that I thought her story needed work. I said that she really needed to edit it and to flush it out because it was far too short to narrate. I hoped deeply that she would be offended and would never message me again, but I was extremely wrong. She started bombarding me with links to stories she had written that were longer, but so much worse. 
They were basically incoherent ramblings and the world's longest run-on sentences. Everyone makes mistakes. There's bound to be errors in writing. It's just a thing that happens, and sometimes those errors make it through the editing process without being caught. But that wasn't the case here. It was like someone tried to write a creepypasta using the predictive text feature on a smartphone. After the fourth installment of what only can be described as a dumpster fire of a story, I decided to take the high road, or the coward's way out, depending on how you look at it. I started to ignore her. To be honest, blocking her didn't really cross my mind at this point. I wish it would have though. I was already stressed out enough without her adding on to it. We were in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. I was fresh out of a divorce and had an upcoming trip to go visit my family. The last thing I wanted or needed was some crazy obsessed chick stalking me. Things went quiet for a few days. If she had been listening to my streams, she would know I was planning a trip. And I think for once, she had a coherent thought and probably figured out I wasn't responding to her because of my trip. In reality, while I was busy, I was actively avoiding Reddit and YouTube in hopes that she would find someone else new to cling on to. When I came home from my trip, I was in rough shape and somehow my internet was knocked out while I was gone, so I had to cancel several streams, making my total time away from YouTube and Reddit roughly three weeks, and it was three weeks of pure bliss. Yesterday, I was finally able to stream again. As I was setting up the stream and it was counting down, she popped into the chat. My friends were all painfully aware of who she was, so they were all waiting with bated breath trying to anticipate what she would do. It wasn't long before she started rambling and calling me master. She would make up stories about my channel while challenging the people who actually wrote the stories she was trying to imitate. She started demanding I read her letters, saying that her demons demanded it. She started fetishing me and it didn't take but a moment for one of my friends to speak up and call out for being so creepy. She went quiet and I managed to finish the stream mostly undisturbed. Once the stream was finished, I popped into a group video chat, and that's where I learned about the most recent posts. While I was reading, my friends took it upon themselves to conduct some research and found out where she had been posting these letters that she had demanded I read. She had taken a story written by one of my friends, who frequently writes for my channel, and she completely bastardized it. She rambled about her and her demons feasting on my friends' bodies. She went into detail about me, how she would keep me safe from her demons, and she talked about torturing the various writers who had worked with me in the past. She swore I had promised to read more of her stories, but I never made anyone that promise. She talked about how, with each passing stream, she grew more and more angry when she didn't hear her stories. She went on about her many demons and how she questioned if holding them back was really the best idea after all. At the end of the post, she tagged me and left very thinly veiled threats in hopes of getting me to read her stories. My friends could see the look of pure horror in my face as I finished reading her message. I think they were just as creeped out as I was. A few of them tried to crack jokes to lighten the mood, while a couple others made sure I told my roommate what was happening and that I had a plan just in case she actually snapped. Before going to bed, I carefully made sure all the doors and windows were locked and that the pistol I kept on my nightstand was fully loaded. I tucked my kids in, checked on my roommate, and went to bed. When I woke up the next morning, everything seemed normal. I got up and started down towards my kitchen to make my morning cup of coffee. 
When I walked by the front door, I noticed a small slip of paper peeking out from underneath it, as if someone tried to slide it under the door. When I picked it up, it revealed a crudely drawn picture of a dark figure and what may have been a disemboweled body in his hands. The paper was sprinkled with these dark red, sticky droplets. It was right then I called the police. Since it appeared that someone had not actually been inside my home, they deemed my call as a low priority and took their time getting to my house. While I was waiting for them, I decided to grab my gun and check the outside of my house. Underneath my bedroom window, I found an old aerosol can and some used matches. There were small scorch marks on the paneling, almost as if someone tried to light the vinyl sliding on fire. In between the scorch marks were pictures of knives and axes drawn in what looked like blood. I ran back inside the house to be greeted by my kids. They had just woken up and were wondering where my roommate was. It was his day off and he would usually make it the point to cook the kids breakfast. I was heading towards his bedroom when I heard the police knocking on the door. I quickly ushered them inside and started to explain what was happening while showing them the messages and comments. The officers stared with blank expressions as I showed them the screenshots. But it wasn't until I showed them the side of the house that they started to get concerned. They questioned me extensively about the possibility that my roommate or kids were playing a prank on me. I assured them that it wasn't my kids or my roommate and even mentioned that I hadn't seen my roommate all morning. The officers took a report and photos while assuring me that they would send someone to collect evidence from the sliding. They told me to try to get a hold of my roommate and said if I didn't hear from him that evening to give them a call back. While they were walking to their patrol car, one of the officers turned and suggested to me that I pack up the kids and run to the hardware store to get a security system. That was all it took for me to drive to the store. With a pandemic, money was tight, but I bought the most state-of-the-art system the store had. Things had already escalated far beyond what I could imagine, and there's no way I could risk my kids or my roommate's safety. It had alarms, cameras, and it would connect to my phone and send me notifications should any of the doors or windows be opened. The kids were antsy, so we rushed home. As we were pulling into the driveway, I noticed the mailman was making his way up the street. I got the kids inside and was making my way down the driveway when the mailman pulled up to my mailbox. I was halfway down the driveway when he must have opened the mailbox. I say must have because all I remember was a large flash and an ear shattering boom. The force of the explosion was so strong that it knocked me on my ass. I sat there in shock, watching tatters of the mail and streams of blood and organs dance around me. I didn't even hear the sirens as the police came racing to my house. After being checked out by the paramedics in the back of the ambulance, the police took me inside my house and started asking me questions. Admittedly, I didn't have any answers, but that didn't stop them from asking me. I brought up my stalker and my missing roommate. At that point, I was basically pleading with them. There was no way that this was some sort of coincidence. My hands shook as I stared at the phone in my hands. I knew she had done this. Now I just needed to convince the officers that she was the cause of all of this. While showing the officers the post that my stalker made about me, I noticed the dates. Her final threatening message was posted two days before the last stream and hadn't seen the post. Could it have been that she was making good on her threats? Did me not reading her stories push her over the edge?
When I clicked back on her profile, a message popped up. Without me reading it, I handed my phone to the police officer closest to me. The officer turned pale within moments of reading the message. He started dry heaving and had to leave the room. As my phone was passed from officer to officer, each one had a unique but equally horrified reaction. I still don't know what was in that message and I don't want to. The police took my phone and laptop and put me and my kids up in a hotel a few times over. After everything that had happened, I was super antsy, so I decided to walk to the store next to the hotel. While I was there, I picked up a cheap pay-as-you-go phone so I could contact my family and let them know that me and my kids were safe. I downloaded the Reddit app so I could see if my stalker had posted anything new and so maybe I could be prepared just in case anything happened. She posted a picture of my roommate's wallet about an hour ago. That's part of what made me decide to document this. I didn't think I was going to get to see my roommate again, alive at least, and wanted there to be a solid paper trail should anything happen to me. As I was finishing typing out everything, I decided to check out her Reddit again, and there is a picture of my hotel room door. I think she is watching me now, because right as I looked up from my screen, my phone started buzzing wildly in my hands. Message after message came through, with no pause. Panicking, I threw the phone on the bed and started weighing out my options. I managed to pop off the grate of the air vent and it looks to go through to the room next door. I've convinced my kids to crawl inside and made them promise to crawl to the next room if they hear anything bad happen. I turned off the heat and air in my room before loosely screwing the grate back on. I'm on the phone with the police now. Thank God this hotel still had the old corded phones in the rooms. I hope I can update this soon, but if I can't, know that I went out fighting, and always be aware of who you are talking to online. Please don't ever be afraid to block someone, and always trust your gut.